Welcome to the Metaphoricist Magazine podcast, your home for beautifully made speculative fiction. The magazine is edited by B. Morris Allen, and I'm your host, Matt Gomez. This week's story is Nothing But the Gods on Their Backs by Alex T. Singer. Alex T. Singer lives in coastal Connecticut with her wife, daughter, two cats, and too many fantasy books to count. Her grandfather, Lauren A. Singer, wrote The Parallax View. Find her online at littlefoolery.com or on Twitter at Sphere Theorist. That's S-F-E-E-R-T-H-E-O-R-I-S-T. Let's jump in. Rekka is sitting by the shrine when the walls start to shake. It's not much of a shrine, decoration more than anything. It's got a figurine her parents bought her at a street fair, two cinnamon sticks and a plastic dish. The figurine is a little statue of the state god, a polished, red, lacquered statuette clutching the six holy weapons. Each represents a branch of the holy military, amen. She keeps it on her desk and never prays to it. She's studying for her exams. When the shaking doesn't stop, the PA messages start. Not hymns. Evacuation instructions. Rekka looks up and realizes, that's it. The idiot faithful have finally made it all die. She sweeps everything on her desk into her emergency bag and makes for the door. Rekka brings the god with her from the old world, shoved into the lid of her suitcase, rolled into her sweaters and stuffed in her socks. She stumbles into the last train out, dropping her hats and most of her scarves, but though she breaks the wheels on her bag, she doesn't lose the god. She holds the bag to her chest, sticking her elbows out, barely breathing in the overstuffed train car. All she has left in the world, passport, cash box, three school books, four dresses, a can of beans, a pan, her mother's rolling pin, and the god. It will be all that's left to any of them as metal groans and smoke billows behind them, the way home closes forever in a wall of falling mortar. Rekka holds her breath closes her eyes, and somehow survives. She can only hope her mother and brother did the same. Her dad died for the army like a good godly man two years ahead of the rest. She was never meant for the Avatar business. There were plenty interpreters of the faith in the old world. Drill sergeants, captains, colonels, and generals. People in the old world with money, power, or reputation. But the statues they tended were all large and heavy, and bolted into the municipal buildings huge and grand, and now buried and gone. It's all gone now, from the towering statues to the tiny desk shrines. Anyone who was anyone fell over each other to get out. Rekka's the only one who thought to grab a statue of the god. She will never see her grandparents again, but she will see this stupid little god, so help her. Rekka stumbles off the train. They herd her to some tents, then a shelter, then customs. She seeks out what's left of her family at the border, in a refugee camp set up by some New World Relief Organization. She finds them, and finds out where time stopped for them all. Her mother was gardening. Her brother was teaching. Her cousins were at basic training, learning proper religion. It's the same program Rekka refused to attend, after a drill sergeant broke her brother's leg in three places and called him a coward. Her cousins she hates sneer at the little god in her arms. They were hoping she had cash. It's one of the knockoffs. Why do you have that? You didn't even serve. 
Rekka doesn't care about them. She cares about her mother and brother, shivering behind them. They didn't have time to grab their coats. Oh, Rekka, says her mother in tears. She's clutching a crinkled bunch of herbs under her arm. It saved you. In the new world, the god sits on the radiator of the tiny refugee apartment she shares with her mother, her brother, and those two cousins. For the first year, between endless job applications, dishwashing, and night courses, it goes mostly forgotten. When Rekka gets a job driving rich people to work, she remembers the god. She remembers it the night she comes home late to find her cousins with five friends in the alley behind the apartment. They're laughing and drinking and kicking over all the crates of old world herbs her mother spent months trying to cultivate. They stick empty beer bottles in the basil. Put your garbage somewhere else, says Rekka. Her cousins laugh in her face. What's back here besides garbage and you, I guess. Rekka chases them out with a broom. They laugh all the way out. What can you do? Not like you served. Like they didn't shove their old uniforms into the trash at the border. It's fine, Rekka, says her mother, red-eyed, once they're gone. They're just boys. It's what they do sometimes. The next morning, Rekka buys used flower pots and a plastic stool. She puts a vinyl tablecloth over the stool. There, among the mass-produced starry print, she plants the little lacquerware god. She leaves a few burnt toothpicks and dried rice cakes. It's the best she can manage on short notice. If they start crap again, she says to the statuette, eat their souls. Her cousins came crashing in one more time that week, singing old drill hymns. They bang around the kitchen and trash the living room, but when the door to the alleyway crashes open, their feet stop. What's that? Why is it? Shut up. Let's just go. They don't go back there again. They don't care about the herbs and they don't care about Rekka, but they remember the way that god looked when it was 20 feet tall over the training grounds. The next morning, Rekka finds the rice cakes cleared and a handful of flowers in the dish. She's sure her mother left those, but she won't say. She finds her brother sweeping up the old cigarette butts. She finds her neighbor adding a few sticks of incense. Her mother tells it about her day. Soon, her mother's old friends are coming by. Rekka, can we sit out there for a little? Rekka, do you think these dishes are all right? Do you want another tablecloth? Rekka isn't sure why they ask her, but she answers. Only while I'm home. No breakables, please. Sure, a red one would be great. It's like, all at once, everyone they know from the old world remembers. Oh, right. The state god. Oh, right. It's right there, between the tenements. They come in a lot after that, when Rekka's done driving. Ah, Rekka, can I sit out for a bit? Ah, Rekka, is it okay if I leave a dish? Her mother's friends. People from the sorting center. People who work washing dishes with her brother. They arrive, sheepish and hopeful, embarrassed they forgot. Is the god here? Can we see? None of them saved their statues. We forgot it. We lost it. It broke. So Rekka lets them see the one in her garden. It keeps her cousins out of the alley. She adds a couple of fold-out chairs and some more plants to hide the smell of garbage. She adds some yoga mats when she runs out of chairs. When she doesn't want to deal with her cousins yelling at each other or her brother, she goes out and sits with them. They tell stories of the old world, the ones they almost forgot. 
I was a doctor in the old world. Now they only let me wash the floors. I was a writer in the old world. Now I stand in elevators all day, making sure no one gets off of the floors I would have once worked. Am I all right? Have I done the right thing? Dear God, I'm so sorry I forgot you, but I'm here now. I'm here. If I remember, will things be better? They ask Rekka this last part. Rekka's at a loss. She was a student in the old world, but their eyes ache for an answer, so she gives them one. As long as we're still here, it can get better. Only thing that's bad would have been stopping, right? The doctor janitor clutches her hand and smiles. The writer security guard takes a deep breath and nods. They leave, a little lighter and heavier at the same time. Rekka is not sure she hasn't just run the biggest scam in her life. You really okay with this? She asks the little god on the plastic table. The little god just snarl grins back at her. It starts to rain. A week later, her mother brings a stained tent cover her co-workers from the kitchen bought together, from a farmer's market that closed ages ago. Rekka starts to protest the expense, but her mother says they want to visit in the morning. Rekka agrees. She sits vigil over five or six old world women, sitting and chatting about their lives before the collapse. They leave together, smiling and laughing. All of them have brought an assortment of scented things for the dish. And we left the donation out front, says her mother's co-worker. Eh? says Rekka, who's never said anything like that, never even thought about it. The god glares over the woman's shoulder. That's how Rekka finds out her cousins have been charging visitors to come see it. They've been taking that money to play poker with their friends. She kicks them out that night, screaming and swearing louder than she did when she fled the old world. How friggin' dare you, she says tossing their stuff out the door. Her cousins chase her, shouting and swearing. Psycho bitch! Crazy whore! What the hell, we're just trying to get by. It's a new world. You do what you gotta to get ahead. It's new for them too, she says. What makes you think they're any better off? Get out. One of her cousins remembers he's bigger than her. He turns and sticks his chin up, a vein in his neck bulging. Make me, he says. He tries to shove her away. When Rekka grabs his wrist before his hand can touch her shoulder, she doesn't mean to hold her arm up like the god. She's just trying not to get hit. But she grabs his wrist, and his whole beefy arm stops. Her arm is up. Her other is at her side. Her face is pulled into a grimace, into a concentrated snarl, one that makes her jaw hurt. Her shadow is suddenly very long on the hall ahead of her, and the old world is all around them here in the narrow tenement hallway. Her cousin tries to twist away from her. It doesn't work. When she shoves him, he hits the wall behind him. The wrist he cradles has five deep indents seared into them, like a brand. Her other cousin picks him off the ground, eyes shaking in fear. He tries to play it cool. Come on, let's just go. We can stay with Jules until she calms her goddamn tits. My goddamn what? asks Rekka in a deep, full-chested voice she didn't know she actually had. Her cousins grab handfuls of their junk and back down the hall. They don't try to come back. She turns to face her mother, huddled at the bedroom door, her brother hiding in the kitchen nook. Stuff for the garden, says Rekka, without really thinking. 
She holds her face until she feels the burning leave the space behind her eyes, and she's entirely sure she doesn't have an extra set of teeth. If they want to do something for the place, tell them just to donate shovels or window boxes or something. No more cash. Thank you, mouths her mother, before looking alarmed at herself for approving of the cousin's swift exodus. She rubs her face with her afghan. She pretends she just woke up and didn't see or hear a thing. The old world lies in fragments, and those fragments are people. They blow around the new world, tossed on the winds of desperation and scant opportunity. Rekka doesn't wear her driving uniform when people visit anymore. It seems unfair to greet them smelling like gas and smoke. They wait for her to come home before they call on them. Wait for her to change into one of her rescued dresses and her rescued jackets. Wait for her to put the old world back on like it's a different kind of uniform. They wait for her to come out and say, Yeah, sure, come out back. The ritual bothers Rekka. She gets why the strangers wait for her permission. There's more of them every day. But her mom and brother do it too. You can take them back there too, Rekka tells her brother, one of the days there's traffic. She arrives home late, and there are three very apologetic men and their mother at the door. Has to be you, says her brother. It's rare for him to speak up that plainly. Rekka blinks at him. Bah, why? It's your God. It's everyone's God. Not anymore. Okay, technically true, but you carried it out. Oh God, says Rekka. Her brother gives her this look, like, exactly, and Rekka realizes a second too late what she just said. Fine, fine, but the least is under mom's name, and try to tell them I'm not a priest. If people start expecting sermons from me, I'm closing it up. Her brother laughs. She asks him why. That's not what they think, he says. The hell's that mean? He refuses to elaborate. The next morning, Rekka discovers another freshly seeded flower box, and a line of little wish slips posted on the wall, the kind teachers used to show her how to do when she was six. They're written in crayon. Some of the visitors have kids. Dear God, I want a birthday cake. Dear God, I want flowers. Dear God, I want Mama and Auntie to be happy. Dear God, I want Pop-Pop to come home. Rekka reels at the sheer volume of words that flood her mind. Her eyes ache with him burn with them, but she doesn't have the heart to tear them down. Instead, she slides down the wall and puts her face in her hands. Why? She groans. I wasn't even a corporal. The god looks smug and well-fed. She flips at the bird and cleans off its dish. She doesn't want the rats to get back here. Rats aren't the blood offerings modern gods prefer. Her cousins must have made some anonymous calls because men from the city come knocking at their door one night, wearing black vests and tan shirts. They stomp through the tenements, breaking windows and kicking down garbage cans. They break the door. They yell at her mother. Who are you? Why are you here? What do you think you're trying to pull? They talk so fast her mother doesn't understand them. They take her silence for confirmation. They drag her brother into the street when he gets between them. They throw him down like his drill sergeant, ready to stomp on his good leg. Which is when Rekka runs in from the back alley, wearing her grandfather's jacket and clutching a candle. You leave them alone, she shouts, in a voice bigger than her lungs. You leave! 
The streets are wet from the rain, but they spark with light. The candle fits in one hand, but the reflection blazes so bright and so wide in the water that it fills up the whole block. The light touches everything, except the shadow at Rekka's feet. This long and wide, and if you squint at the blur, it looks like it has more than two arms, and each one is grasping a weapon. The arms come down. The light fades. The door's still broken, but the men are gone. Rekka throws her arms around her brother and cries and cries and cries. The candle rolls into a puddle and gutters out. The men in vests don't come back after that. Another man from the city comes to check on the shrine. He knocks on the patched door and asks, politely, if they know about it. Rekka thinks he's going to shut them down, going to nail something to their door, or put a chain up over the alleyway. But he just asks them to move the flammables further away from the vents, and not to leave any perishables uncovered. As far as small mercies go, it'll do. The rider guard is still a guard, but he works at an art museum now. It's got better hours, better things to stare at during the day. The doctor janitor hasn't managed to become a doctor again, but he has become the manager of the hospital commissary. It pays better. He tries to give Rekka a few banknotes and thanks. No way, she says. what I say? He looks at her blankly. Rekka sighs. The god wants growth, okay? So he buys her a sprinkler system for the garden. Still a bit too extravagant, but her mother started bringing veggies to the local kitchen. She and her women make ready-made lunches for the office folk Rekka drives around. It's not glamorous, but the office workers like their rice bowls, and they don't scowl at buying good meals off of old-world hands. Look at us, says her mom, squeezing her hands one evening. A New World delegation of IT guys came to the restaurant for dinner. They actually tipped. Look at you. Mom, I didn't do this, says Rekka. It's a space, okay? It's just a space. But no matter how many times she says it, no one seems to hear it. One day, though, when the clouds are thick and she works well past midnight, Rekka comes home and finds a man crouched under an awning in the thick, driving rain. He's a battered, tattered-looking man in a patched coat. The threads of one shoulder have separated. One sleeve is knotted high against his armpit. The arm that should have occupied that sleeve is gone, like their home. Rekka recognizes the coat. Get out, she says in anger. It belonged to the men she saw as she boarded the train from the old world. A flash of olive drab and gold buttons. They used to march on TV and stand on temple steps. Please, he says. She starts over. You could have waited under the canopy in the back. I certainly could have says the man, with a wry smile. But it's your god, ma'am. Ugh, another one. But he's wet and sad, and Rekka's nothing if not a soft touch for anyone who's not a useless cousin. All right, let me get you some hot cocoa at least. He refuses to come inside. He chooses to sit under the canopy in the back. She sits with him. They watch the rain roll off of it in a sheet. There you are he says to the god, as he puts a bouquet of dried flowers on the dish. That's it, all right. But what a funny little one you've got here. That face is certainly a revelation. Finally, someone says it, says Rekka. Yeah, I know it's cheap. My folks got it for like five bucks at a street market. 
came with you, though. He's not the meathead she expected. She rubs the back of her neck sheepishly and tries to hand him one of her coats, which he very firmly refuses. Yeah, well, kept it on my desk. I liked making faces at it in the morning. Got me all pumped for the hard classes. It was stupid, okay? I really hope no one told you I was a priest, because I just set all this up to keep it clean back here, so uh, sorry if they did. It's funny. She's heard a lot of old world stories now in this little shrine she made by accident, but this is the first time she's really told her own. The man nods. He only has one working eye. The other one is made of glass and drifts lazily in the wrong direction. You're no priest, he says. Thank you, breathes Rekka. But it's still your god. I... Rekka's eyes flick to the little figure, like somehow she expects it to come in and back her up. It doesn't. It just grin growls like always. It looks almost like it's snickering. What? Hmm. Let me tell you something, he says. I know I'm not much of anything these days, but back in the old world, I was a soldier. You might have guessed. I kind of had that idea. Want to guess my rank? No. Why, in the old world, I was a colonel, says the man. And with his peppery gray hair and his smoke-stained teeth, Rekka has no reason to doubt that, though his patched coat is missing all the medals and badges that would have told it more true. One of the few left when the old world fell. I'm sure you recall, ma'am. The end happened slow, then fast. We were taking our orders in the capital temple by the time we knew the cause was lost. So you see, I'm terribly familiar with this one here. He nods to the statue, which seems suddenly very small in his presence. Bit shorter, probably, says Rekka, feeling just as small. Who did she think she was doing all this? But the sense of smallness passes, replaced by a flashing anger, a hotness behind her eyes. Who does this old bigwig think he is, coming here to lecture her, after he and all those old men made all those stupid decisions, after they brought on the end, slow, then fast? Look. But though she squares her shoulders and readies herself for another world-ending war, he holds up a hand. Don't misunderstand me, he says. I was just told this is a place for old world stories. This one's mine. May I tell it? It's not Rekka's right to say no, so she holds her elbows, settles back, and lets him. I was standing in the shrine when the sirens started. They had a big bronze statue there. Think you probably did see it. It was always in the news. Top brass held their press conferences in front of it. Ah, never mind. I was there that hour. The lights were off, everywhere except the basin. It was a bit bigger than this little candy dish, a bit more full of fire. But I imagine they don't let you light that out here, do you? Against regulations, says Rekka, stiffly. She hasn't thought about the candle since that night. Point is, he says, you could look it in the eyes. That old god. That old world. When we knew it was the last time we likely would, we all walked in to see it. We all stared up at it. We all wondered, what do you want from us now, at the end of everything? What more can we do for you, my god? He gives a sad, misty smile. 
What do you think it told us? He's really asking. Rekka downs her hot cocoa and thinks for a moment. Survive, she says, with all those shaking swords on her breath. What's a god without its people, anyway? Is that what it tells you? Something about the way he says it makes Rekka grit her teeth. Yes, she answers, not allowing herself a moment to overthink it. Her head is full of so many things. The useless cousins, her injured brother, her tired mother, the doctor janitor, the writer guard, the old women holding hands, the little wish notes from the children still hanging damp on the wall. Of course it is. Otherwise, what's the point? We're still here, aren't we? Why shouldn't we be here? Who are we if we don't stay us? Wherever we go, we're still us. So it's still it. The old colonel is quiet for a long time. He finishes his hot cocoa. He puts his head down. He doesn't look the god in the eyes anymore. You're right, he says. That makes an awful lot of sense. Thank you, ma'am. I do think you're the expert these days. I said I'm not a priest. No, he says, and with a bit of a wince, he pushes himself back to his feet. But it's a new world. You don't have to be. I like what it tells you more. He refuses the coat one last time. He refuses food. He won't take money. Holding his coat and his pride to his chest, he limps off into the rainy night, leaving Rekka alone in the light of her little back alley garden. She stares at the god, like a naughty child. What did you tell him? She asks. What did you want them to do? The god doesn't quake or cower in the face of her anger, just meets her gaze as blindly as it always has. And she knows, all at once, exactly what all the men in that temple heard. Fight to the last. Fight to the death. Burn the bridges. Burn the temples. Bring the fires down on their heads. Die with me, so none of us will be alone. Rekka stares at her tiny god in disgust. Seriously, she says. It offers no answer, no excuses. After all, it was a war god in the old world. It ate fire and death and countries and politicians. Rekka has no time for any of those things. Yeah, I get it, says the woman who stopped going to temple ages ago, even when they were all still standing. But why did you have me tell them all to keep going? And somewhere in the hurried beat of her heart, she thinks she hears the tiny answer from what's left of that once great God. Wherever we go, we're still us. That's what I said. Is that what you'd say? No, admits the God in her heart. But I like your answer more. That was Nothing But The Gods On Their Backs by Alex T. Singer. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd love it if you'd leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever platform you listen to us on. Or, better yet, share the magazine and podcast with a friend. If you'd like to listen to more speculative fiction, visit us online at magazine.metaphoricist.com or on Twitter at MetaphoricistMag. 